back in the Gospel of John, and last time we were here, we followed Jesus back up to Galilee at the end of chapter 4. As you recall, John gave us a note saying that Jesus wanted to go back to Galilee because he would not be honored there. So he went there. We also saw that just as Jesus had traveled a good distance because he knew there was going to be a certain sexually immoral Samaritan woman by Jacob's well, and he had a divine appointment with her, he also had a divine appointment with an official who, with a sick child as he traveled back to Galilee. In both of those situations, Jesus reaped a harvest of souls. I, I do hope that we have all been able to see in our time in John that there is often much more going on in these uh, stories than what meets the eye. We can get in the mindset of reading about miracles and the goings-on of Jesus' life and ministry and, and think that these are just details. This is just a, a historical retelling of stuff that happened. And while it is a historical account, let us keep in mind that Jesus did not come first and foremost to have compelling conversations with people and to heal people. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to reveal the Father. The Son of Man came down from above to be lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So Jesus is always operating with a different mindset, a different focus, and a different understanding than the rest of us, lest we forget that Jesus is God in the flesh. This next section that we are going to begin today, it's going to be packed with demonstrations of the deity of Christ. Now, this isn't the first time we've come across that, of course. John introduced us to that theme in the prologue. We were, verse 1 introduces us to the deity of Christ. We've been able to see uh, flashes of it throughout the book so far, but over the next 30 or so verses here in chapter 5, it's going to come front and center that Jesus is the Son of God. Right now is where Jesus is going to really ignite the confrontation between he and the Jews, and it's all centered around the fact that he is making himself equal with God. John uses the colors here of a historical narrative to paint a beautiful portrait of the deity of Jesus Christ. So that's going to be our focus then over the next few weeks, this week and next week, maybe a third, but certainly this week and next week, Lord willing, as we look through this interaction between Jesus, today we'll be introduced to an invalid, and the Jews. Today we're going to begin by looking at five demonstrations of the deity of Christ, and Lord willing, next week we will look at some more. Let's look at our text. We're going to read verses 1 through 5, and then I'm going to pray. This is the Word of God. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In those lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Let's pray. Father, I'm reminded afresh of the incredible privilege 
to stand here in front of your people and herald your word. And while I'm reminded of that privilege, I'm reminded of my inability to do that without your help. So Lord, I pray that you would help us in this hour. Help us, help me to expound the word, to not seek to be flashy, or thought of as profound, but just to open your word. I pray that you'd help your people to hear it and to receive it. I pray that Christ would be glorified in this time together. We pray this in his name. Amen. This chapter begins with one of John's favorite phrases. He says, after this. It's not to be taken to mean that immediately following the healing of the official son, that this is the very next thing that happened. It just means after this happened, another thing happened. And we're not really sure exactly how much time has transpired between the account of the official and this um, scene that's set up here for us at the pool at Bethesda. We're told here that the setting we find ourselves in, though, is a feast of the Jews. Now, there are a lot of different feasts that the Jews would have celebrated, and probably at least three that would have brought everybody to Jerusalem. But we don't know which one it is, and it would be really fr- uh, probably not the best use of our time to sit and speculate. But we do know that there would probably be a lot of people in town, in Jerusalem. And remember, Jesus didn't really spend a lot of his time in Jerusalem. He would come there for, usually for the feast. And John is going to talk about a lot of feasts in his gospel. But there are likely a lot of people here in Jerusalem at this time. It's important enough that it brings Jesus here to Jerusalem because he has another divine appointment. Jesus walks into an area by a pool called Bethesda. And I'm sure you're all familiar with this account, aren't you, with the healing of, at the pool at Bethesda. There are five porches there, or structures that are essentially, or we would think of today probably like a, a pergola. Uh, they're roofed structures that are there to hide people from the sun beating down on them. And they're around this pool. And some historians say that there was actually twin pools. And in the middle, there was one, uh, one of the colonnades and two on either side. At any rate, these pools aren't exactly portrayed as a tourist attraction, are they? They're more a place where a multitude of invalids would gather. This is a really sad scene that Jesus is walking into. There's a multitude of people who are blind and lame and paralyzed, all lying around the pool. This would have been a heart-wrenching scene as the helpless are gathered here together looking for help. Those who feel hopeless are here gathered together looking for hope by the waters of this pool. But why are they gathered there? What, what is so special about these pools that a multitude of invalids would gather around them? And if you have the ESV or the NIV, what happened in verse 4? It goes from verse 3 to verse 5. What's going on here? Well, those questions can be answered at the same time. You probably have a note, if, you're, if verse 4 is not there, you probably have a note in the margins that explains that some manuscripts, they add, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. 
Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Why do some Bibles have verse 4 and others don't? There is a process here. Just I, I want to explain this to you so that you don't think that just some Bibles are just leaving it out just because. There's a process called textual criticism. Scholars study the original manuscripts that we have, and obviously the older the better, because they're closer to what was originally written, and they compare them to one another. They compare the earliest manuscripts with manuscripts that we found later. You know, we've been discovering manuscripts over the course of the ages. So sometimes what would happen is that as a scribe is copying the manuscript to make copies, remember they didn't have a printer at this time, so they're making copies. Sometimes a manuscript would add a footnote themselves, and it would be there, be there to explain what's going on. And so in this situation, they have found earlier manuscripts that do not contain verse 4. So many scholars think that that's probably an addition that came later, which is fine because it's a helpful explanation, isn't it? Because we wouldn't really understand what's going on with this pool because we don't really have these tall tales like this, that if you lay by the pool, an angel of the Lord is going to come and stir up the water and you can go into it and you're going to be healed. So that's why some translations put it as a footnote, some other translations include it. But either way, it's there for us to understand what's going on at this pool. So evidently, there's something about this water that stirs it up at different seasons, and all of the sick and those with various maladies believed that they could rush to the pool, and if they were the first one in it, that they could be healed. Maybe they would be healed. Maybe it was an angel of the Lord. We don't know. Once again, it would be probably not the greatest use of our time to sit around and speculate. But what's pro more probable is that this was just common folklore of the time. Remember, in the ancient world, they believed some really, really interesting things about health and about how to get healed. Uh, we still practice some of those things today. Um, some of them are borderline witchcraft, but that's a different a story for a different day. Whatever was going on in this water, people believed that they could be healed by stepping into it. And they believed this so much that John says that there is a multitude of people gathered around here. Multitude of the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed waiting for the waters to stir. Isn't it just amazing, by the way, the things that people put their faith in? They are trusting that I can wait here, and if I get in those waters first, the magic water is going to heal me. It's amazing the frivolous things people put their trust in. Healing pools, healing rocks and ointments. Notice, we don't find this man praying to God for his healing. He's putting his faith in the stirring of the waters of this pool. All of the people are. Only the text then tells us next that this man had been lying there for 38 years. Maybe the man is 38 years old. That's possible. He's been lame all of his life. It's possible. Maybe it happened at a point in his life and he's, it, 
he lived a portion of his life well, and then the rest of the 38 years he's been lame. But either way, this is a very long time to be in this condition. Nobody knows that better than this man who's laying there near the pool at Bethesda, hoping that the waters can stir up, hoping that he can be the first one in the pool. Even though this plan has not worked, no, who knows how many times he's tried, this plan has not worked yet, but his faith is resolute in these waters. But little does he know that the one who gives living water is on his way. Let's look at the healing. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. This is the first demonstration of deity, is infinite knowledge. We have to remember that though Jesus appeared as any other man outwardly, that he walked this world with two natures existing simultaneously and mysteriously within him. He walked this earth fully God and fully man. Truly God and truly man. Fully man, he grew tired and hungry. We saw that by the well, didn't we? He walked this earth as fully God and fully man as well. He breathed, he slept, he even died. Fully God, he turned water into wine, he healed an official's son, and he possessed all knowledge about this invalid whom he's never met. Do you see that in the text? It just, Jesus just knew that this man had already been there. Jesus knows this man because Jesus is God. Jesus came to the pool on this day at this time because he knew this man would be there. This is a divine appointment. It's not as though Jesus is walking around kind of seeing the sights and is like, oh, hey, look at this guy. Hey, you want to be well? I'm just kind of bored, you know. Maybe I'll just kind of feel like healing. That's not what's going on here. He knows exactly where this man is. He knew exactly where to walk in at this scene. He knew what time to come, and he knew exactly what to say. And he knew that this man had been there a long time, that he hadn't made it into the pool. He knew the very sad, pitiable condition of this man. Now, we've seen this before. We've seen that Jesus is all-knowing in this book already. This isn't the first time. He knew Simon before they were formally introduced in chapter 1. He knew Nathaniel in chapter 1, verse 47, before they had formally met. He knew that he had been under the fig tree. You remember that? When, when you were under the fig tree, I, I saw you, and that there was no deceit in his heart. He knew that what was in man, whether it was true belief or unbelief at the end of chapter 2, he knew what was in Nicodemus in chapter 3. He knew the Samaritan woman would be coming out at Jake, to Jacob's well at the very time that he was there in chapter 4. He knew that that interaction with her is going to lead to a harvest of souls there in Sychar. He knew that unless the people from his hometown who did not honor him saw signs and wonders, they'd never believe. 
John has been weaving this golden thread of the deity of Christ all throughout this gospel already. But in our passage, it's going to become so clear and explicit that Jesus is God that look at verse 18. Verse 18 is going to happen. This was why, we're starting at verse 15, or 16, I'm sorry. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's why I say that this is coming front and center, because now the confrontation is really igniting. I would submit to you here that this is the underlying reason for why Jesus is healing this man at all. And why he is healing this man on this particular day. Because Jesus is all-knowing. He knows that the Jews will be outraged by this interaction and it will ignite a burning flame of rage and hatred in their hearts that will eventually lead to them crucifying Jesus. And that's exactly what he wants because the Son of Man must be lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent so that he can draw all men to himself. Jesus has to be crucified. He can't be well-loved. So he knows what he's doing he asks the man, do you want to be healed? Isn't that kind of strange when we just talked about him being all-knowing and then Jesus is asking a question as though he doesn't know? If Jesus is all-knowing, why is he asking, do you want to be healed? I'm not really sure if you do. He knows that he's been there for 38 years, but he doesn't know if he wants to be healed? Well, that's not what's going on here. This question is not for Jesus' own understanding so that he can know if this man really wants healing. Jesus already knows how this is going to play out. He already knows what's going on. He's asking this question not for himself, but for this man to engage this man. He wants the man to engage with him and to talk about his plight. And he does. So he responds, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Isn't that sad? This poor invalid for 38 years is lying by this pool, hoping to make it in there one day. But everybody beats him. Imagine how heartbreaking it must be every time that he gets up. He sees the water finally stirring. And so he starts to try to move. And then everybody's rushing in there before him. Imagine how heartbreaking this must be. Imagine how hard his heart must be. Mary says, I don't even have anyone to help me. Where's his family? Does he not have any friends? For all we know, this man is completely alone. The same way that this moves your heart, I believe that it moved the heart of Jesus even more. This brings us to the second demonstration of deity, is the tender compassion of Jesus. 
The author of Hebrews sprinkles throughout that book one of the most precious truths about our Lord, that he is a sympathetic high priest. He's not some apathetic deity. He's compassionate. He cares about what happens to us. He cares. Have you ever thought about that? It's this same Jesus who weeps over Jerusalem in Luke 19 because of their unbelief. Jesus weeping. Imagine that. It's the same Jesus who weeps outside of the tomb of Lazarus in John 11. He cares. That's why the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's because he cares. It's the same reason why Peter writes in his first letter to cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. It's why our great high priest intercedes for us even right now. It's because he cares for us. But it's also why Jesus came to this invalid. It's because he cares for him. He loves this man. He's not indifferent towards his suffering. He is moved in love to come and show his tender compassion towards this poor sinner. But is this really a demonstration of deity? I mean, aren't people compassionate? Well, yes, we are. But where do you think we get that from? Most importantly, this is something that the Jews would have known very well about God that's unique to him and about him. Psalm 103, 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Psalm 78, verse 38. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Jesus possesses this same tender compassion that the Father does because he is one with the Father because Jesus is God. As humans, we have the capacity to feel compassion. Of course we do. God has definitely given us that ability, but we don't hold a candle to the compassion that God displays towards sinful humanity. You know, he has no reason outside of the fact that he is love. He has no reason to care for us, but he does. He chooses to love us. He chooses to keep your heart beating right now at this very moment breath coming in and out of your lungs because he cares because he remembers that we are dust it's best seen in fact in that Jesus shows his compassion towards the unlovely and unclean outcasts you know his disciples called him rabbi rabbis were known for seeking their own honor for staying away from outcasts and the unclean and Jesus turns that on his head and he goes and seeks out the outcast. He goes and finds one. Samaritan woman. He singled her out and went after her to show her compassion. The official at the end of chapter 4. This would not have been a well-liked man. He might have even been a Gentile. 
But Jesus shows him compassion. And now this poor soul by the pool, as an invalid, he would have been an outcast of society. He won't, wouldn't even be able to talk, go and be a part of regular life with everybody because he would be seen as unclean. During this time, a lot of Jews believed that if you were sick or ill, it was because you're a sinner. That's how they would have viewed this man. You know, we don't even have to really guess or speculate about that. The man tells us, sir, I don't have anyone to help me. Everyone's left. They think I'm unclean. I have no one to help. Try as I might, I can't get in the water to be healed. I can't heal myself. Jesus feels compassion for this man, so he tells the man, get up, take up your bed and walk. There are two more demonstrations of deity that we find right there. The third one is sovereign grace. Did you notice something missing from this interaction? If we back up a few steps, I want you to notice that this man has not even recognized Jesus. He hasn't said anything that would lead us to believe that he's crying out to Jesus. As I said, he didn't, Jesus didn't come in and find the man praying. He's putting all of his hope and faith in the pool, in the waters. In fact, look down at verse 13. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. He didn't even know who healed him. He had no earthly idea. Do you see that when Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? The man didn't say, yes, please heal me. Instead, he explains why he's not healed yet. It's because I haven't made it into those waters. Jesus displays his sovereign grace in moving in love and compassion towards this man because of his own good and perfect purposes. We don't know anything about this man. We're not told anything good about him. But Jesus comes to him. This, by the way, is an attribute that only God possesses. When Moses is asking for God to show him his glory in Exodus 33, God is telling Moses that he will indeed pass before Moses and proclaim his holy name, Yahweh, before him. And how does God reveal himself? What does he say about his glory? What does he say about himself that makes him glorious? Exodus thirty-three nineteen. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What makes God glorious is his sovereign prerogative to display mercy and grace upon those whom he chooses. It is the unique prerogative of God to do this. And you know what? Jesus shares in that prerogative with the Father because he is one with the Father because Jesus is God. Now think of what has transpired in our text. Did John write that Jesus came to the pool at Bethesda and found one man lying there by the pool? There was just one guy. He came in, the pool was empty, there's one guy sitting there, so he walked up to the only guy at the pool. Or did John say there was a multitude? There was a multitude of invalids. Did Jesus walk in and pronounce healing for everyone? He walks up to one man, 
one. One man amongst a multitude of people. We can react to that as some people do when they hear of the sovereign grace of God and say, wow, that's really cruel of him to leave everyone else there. But I guarantee you if we asked that one man about what he thought, he would say, know how gracious of Jesus to come and even rescue one. He didn't have to. He could have kept walking. This man had no one to help him. No one would have even known if Jesus had decided to stroll on by and move on with his day. But because he's compassionate and because he will show grace to whom he chooses, he singles one man out. Do you know what also teaches us about sovereign grace? Is that it's personal. It's not like Jesus grabs a handful of grace and just throws it out into the air and it's going to hit whoever it hits. If you are saved, he has singled you out. He has known you by name. It was personal. Your salvation is personal. Jesus knows you. Isn't that amazing? How compassionate and how kind and how gracious and how loving Every one of us in here and across the world who has tasted of this sovereign grace can chime in in union, in unison, in praise of our wonderful God and Savior. That He would do that for us. You see, all of us have been laying by the pool, paralyzed spiritually. And had it not been for Christ coming in and singling us out, and saying, get up and walk, we'd still be there. Maybe you're still there this morning, but you've been putting your faith in something that does not make you whole. In the distributing of sovereign grace, we see another demonstration of the deity of Christ, its immeasurable power. You see, it's one thing to want to show grace and want to show mercy to people, It's another thing to have the ability to do that. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Friends, if we are not careful, we can stop being amazed about these miracles. We can read these, we've heard these a hundred times. Yeah, I know, Jesus healed a guy who couldn't walk, great. It won't surprise us anymore. It won't leave us in awe anymore. But just think about what is taking place here. This man does not have enough strength in his limbs to even get himself to the waters. He has no one to help him. He's been an invalid for 38 years. Do you know that within a month of not using your muscles, your muscles will begin to atrophy? Within a month, some say as early as two weeks of being bedridden, and you will begin to lose muscle mass with your muscles thinning out. Here this man has been lying there for 38 years. 38 years! And with one word from our Savior, he's able to immediately stand up and walk. Notice that. It isn't enough that Jesus just said, okay, here's the deal. 
I'm going to heal you to where you can stand up. And then you need to rehab for the next six months. I'm going to send you a trainer. They're going to help you learn how to walk and learn how to use your hands. How many of you know that would still be amazing? That man would still be blown away. I can walk now. I can use my arms now. But our Lord doesn't work in half measures when it comes to restoration. He heals this man totally and completely and has even given his brain and the nerves in his body the ability to communicate with his limbs to tell them to move. He has created muscle mass in this man's body where there was none. This is an amazing miracle. And we know that this is a true miracle because for one, it's captured in the scriptures and two, the Jews who hate Jesus confirm that this actually happened in verse 10. They see him walking around with his bed. They see that this miracle has happened. That's a pretty trustworthy witness is when your enemy can testify that something happened. But this is immeasurable, unfathomable power on full display, the kind of power that only God has. And Jesus possesses this infinite power because Jesus is God. What has Jesus done with this infinite knowledge, the tender compassion, the sovereign grace, and immeasurable power? He has not only displayed all of those attributes and one more that we're going to get to, but he has also used this, this situation to instigate a confrontation with the Jews. You see, I said at the beginning that Jesus is always operating at multiple levels. We see one thing, and it's just happenstance to us that the Jews, this and the other thing. No. Jesus knew what was going on. He knew, I'm going to do two amazing things here. I'm going to heal this man, bless this man's life incredibly, and this is going to lead to something else. Confrontation with the Jews. Let's read about the confrontation. Look at the second half of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. Uh-oh. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who's the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. If you've ever read through the Gospels, you know that Jesus often has confrontations with the Jews about the Sabbath. And here in John's Gospel, it is this moment that sets off the Jews' hatred for Jesus. Let's look at their response. First, I want you to notice that John makes sure to add one more time that the Jews were responding, he writes, to the man who had been healed. To the man who had been healed. Undoubtedly, they would have known that this man had been an invalid. He had been an invalid for 38 years. Maybe they knew that fact or not, but they definitely knew that he had been an invalid for a number of years especially as they see him walking around with his bed. You know, it's not every day that a person's just carrying the bed around. No, that was indicative of the fact that this man had an issue, and he's now taking up his bed, and he's walking. 
But all they care about is that he's breaking their traditions. Do you notice that they don't have any interest in saying, wow, what happened to you? Just this morning, I saw you. You were laying by the pool. Did you make it into the pool? They don't say anything. The first thing that they get to is that this man is breaking their tradition. Now, to be sure, it is the Lord who commanded Sabbath keeping. That was in the law of Moses. But they had added their own misinterpretations and traditions on top of and in really in place of what God had commanded. So it's easy for us to read about the Pharisees, and I, I always want to, to make sure to point this out, because we can read about their law-keeping, and we can get a bad taste about, in our mouth about the law. You hear this today, when people are trying to be serious about God and about Scripture, oh, you're a Pharisee. My favorite is, you have a spirit of religion. You're a Pharisee, because you want to obey God's law. But we have to be very careful that we not allow the Pharisees' gross misinterpretation of God's law to taint our view of God's law or of people who truly desire to obey what God has commanded. Romans 7.12 tells us that the law is holy and righteous and, get this, good. Wow, have you ever thought of the law of God that way, that it's good it's not a bad thing. It's a holy thing when it's in the proper context. Since the Sabbath is in our text, let's think through that together. Exodus chapter 20. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Did you notice that the Lord said that he had blessed the seventh day? The Sabbath is a gift from God for holy rest. But false religion takes what God has blessed and turns it into a burden. Nehemiah chapter 13 and 9, verse 19 and Jeremiah 17, 21, we find more discussion around the Sabbath. See, in God's command, he says, the seventh day is a Sabbath to your Lord. You shall not do any work. And they had understood that to mean in Nehemiah and Jeremiah that you shall not carry a burden through the city. Well, that was taken over time to be interpreted as you cannot carry things. But whenever they were talking about a burden and talking about work, he was talking about work. Because a lot of people were involved in agriculture at that time. Carrying a burden was carrying your work around. You were carrying your work from one place to another place. So he said, don't do that. This is not a day to work. This is a day for rest. But the Pharisees turned that in to something way Worse, so much so that they're saying this man's bed can't even be carried. You can't pick up your bed because the law says no work, don't carry a burden. That's a bed, that's a burden. Do you see how they had so grossly distorted it? So much so that they can't even celebrate with this man 
all that they can muster up to say is it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Lie back down, Mr. Invalid. You can be healed tomorrow. Maybe. And that's not really a stretch of my imagination either because that's literally what a religious leader says in Luke 13, 14. Jesus has just freed a woman from demonic oppression and the ruler of the synagogue is indignant with Jesus because he did this on what day? Could you guess? It's the Sabbath day. Jesus, you know, freeing a woman from demonic oppression, but he did it on the Sabbath. Listen to what the man says, the ruler of the synagogue. There are six days to Jesus. There are six days in which work ought to be done. I just, I mean, come on. Do you think Jesus knows? Hello? He's God. He was there. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. (laughs) Come get healing on a different day. Can't your demonic oppression wait? Wait till tomorrow. This is how false religion works. Christ desires to set us free, and false religion keeps you bound. Christ desires for us to freely come, freely worship, freely submit to his commands. False religion puts a yoke on people that they can't bear up under while demanding more and more and more and more. You'll take, we'll talk more about the Sabbath, Lord willing, next week as we go further into the confrontation between Jesus and the Jews. But for now, let's notice another aspect of this reaction. They're upset that this man is taking up his bed and walking on, uh, on the Sabbath, not because he's breaking God's law. We cleared that up. This isn't actually God's law that they are mad about, but because he's breaking their tradition. He is subverting their authority. And the religious leaders of the day loved their authority. They loved the honor that came with that. So the man, probably greatly intimidated and fearful of the Jews, responds, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they ask him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? The man had no idea who it was. The Jews want to question this man. Whoever it was, he's giving directions to people to subvert our authority. Who does this man think he is? Isn't that much like what they did with John the Baptist in chapter 1? Who's given you the right to come out here and preach? You haven't been sanctioned by the temple. And here they are again, obsessed with their authority, obsessed with their power. Because this man is breaking their traditions. Isn't it amazing that Jesus did this, by the way? He knew exactly what he was doing with healing this man on the Sabbath. He knew that this is going to rile them up the way that it did. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was going to show incredible compassion to this man, while at the same time dousing gasoline on the flame of hatred that burned in the hearts of the Pharisees towards himself. Our Lord is fearless and courageous, and he is in total control of this situation. Look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. 
sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus catches up with this man that he's healed in the temple. And here we find the fifth demonstration of the deity of Christ. It is unwavering holiness. This was no random miracle. Jesus had an incredible purpose in showing this man compassion and using this miracle to stoke the fire of adversity. But he also knew this miracle for this man was about more than just calling him to his feet. He was calling this man to holiness. He tells the man to stop sinning lest something worse happen to him. Isn't that stunning? Here, this, this man has just been shown this incredible compassion by our Lord who cared for him when no one else would. And now the same great physician threatens him that something worse than 38 years of being an invalid will happen to him if he doesn't stop sinning. Isn't this almost anticlimactic? I mean, there's just this huge moment with this, imagine the joy in this man's heart. And then here comes Jesus and stops sinning. Why would he say this? We need to call to mind Paul's words in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, this man would be sadly mistaken if he walked away from the Son of God with a new lease on life, new legs, new strength, and then he could just go on his merry way. So Jesus displays his unwavering holiness, lets him know that this physical holiness, wholeness, is not nearly as important as his spiritual wholeness. What's worse than being an invalid for 38 years, my friends? What is worse than that? What could be worse than laying by a pool that you believe can heal you and never being able to make it in that pool because of how hard it is for you to move and because you have no one to help you? What could be worse than the many nights of loneliness and the frustration and anger that surely must have often visited this man's heart if it didn't live in his heart? What can be worse than watching everyone else go into the pool and watching people who can walk and run and jump while you're resigned to this prison of immobility. Here's what. It's continuing on in sin and finding yourself in the lake of fire. While our Lord is compassionate and tender and gracious and merciful towards the hurting, His holiness is unwavering. He teaches us here so clearly that what is far more important than our physical condition is our spiritual condition. Do you see that? Something worse will happen to you, my friend, if you don't stop sinning. This word, this world, is full of these kinds of scenes like the pool at Bethesda where the spiritually blind, lame, and paralyzed gather around thinking that they will be made well. Whether it be substance abuse, career pursuits, money, anger, jealousy, there are many different solutions offered by this world 
for what ails the human soul. But the only solution is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's it. One solution. Maybe you're not in Christ this morning. You need to know this morning that no amount of success or financial gain or comfort or good health amounts to anything without being made right before God. You need to know this morning that those pools you're lying by, hoping that they'll fix you, won't do you any good. You need to come to Christ. You need to get up and take up your bed and walk after him. Every one of you in here who is in Christ this morning has come to know this for themselves. But how often do you find yourself still going back to the pool at Bethesda instead of the fountain of living water? When life is hard, when life is good, whatever it is, remember that what this world offers, what your fleshly nature craves, it will not cure what ails you. Only Christ can. And what's more is that he has made a way for you to continually come to him and be refreshed. Maybe you're not in Christ this morning. If you aren't, come to him. And if you are, continue to come to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that throughout the ages still speaks so clearly to us. Lord, we thank you for your wisdom and your brilliance. That we, we, just, we see simple things happening, just a, uh, another healing and the Jews are mad. But so much is happening that you're doing behind the scenes. And isn't that true every day of our life? Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to trust in you. When life is good, when life is bad. Help us not to turn to the pools of this world, but to continually come back to the fountain of living water. Because you have made a way for us to do that. I pray that we live there, that we linger there. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.